Travel creates stories. Unforgettable stories that can make us smile, laugh, or even cry. I'm David Calderon, and you're listening to Out of Office, powered by Contiki. This podcast is for people who love to travel. In each episode, we'll be talking about hot topics and intriguing destinations. It's all about the real conversations, real stories, and real experiences. Today, we'll be talking about traveling without labels, being true to yourself, and how getting out of your comfort zone can empower us to discover who we are. I'm joined by three guests who are here to talk about their personal journeys. Blogger and creator of the brand Fat Girl Traveling, Annette Richmond, social activist Harnam Kaur, and journalist and travel writer Georgina Lawton. Welcome to the podcast, ladies. Thank you. All right. Now, Georgina, we're going to start off with you. Mm-hmm. Now, you had a normal, lovely childhood, but there was always one thing that stood out to you and your family. Can you tell me a bit more about that? So I grew up just on the outskirts of London and I had a relatively normal upbringing, aside from the fact that I didn't look like anybody in my family. I'm tall and I've got curly hair. I'm brown skinned. I'm black. I'm mixed race. But the rest of my family is completely white. um, And nobody really spoke about why that was um, for most of my life until I asked them, really. What age did the lack of knowledge and your parents not necessarily answering your questions begin to take its toll? So anxieties about my race, they kind of gnawed away at me at different points in my life growing up. So even though I had this really nice, happy uh, childhood, there would be points when I'd be, I don't know, five years old and I'd realise that, you know, my mum looked different to me and I'd speak to my friends in school and say, oh, why, why do you think my skin's this colour and why do you think my mum's that colour? So I could, I was very much aware of it from a young age, but then I'd go to my parents and they'd say things like, oh, you know, you're definitely related to us and you're definitely our child and we love you and you don't need to worry about that. But they didn't really ever give me answers as to why I didn't look like them. So these kind of occasional incidents would pop up at just random points in my childhood, five years old, then 10 years old, someone would call me, you know, like a a derogatory word in the playground. And then I'd come back to my parents and say, oh, this has happened. Why is this happening? And I think my parents just weren't able to really get to the bottom of... um, of why that was. They just weren't able to really kind of engage with with my difference at all. They just weren't able to talk about it. Yeah, so they obviously were trying to like keep you like in a positive light and like help mm. you through it, but at the same time, like not necessarily giving you the answers that you were kind of, but why? Exactly. And like this would happen regularly and it got kind of worse as I got older because, you know, as you get older, you get more cynical. So by the time I was about 16, 17, I was identifying as mixed race and I was going into central London and south London and being around people that looked like me a little bit more often. But then as I kind of ventured into those pockets of London, I'd get more questions and like, oh, what's your mix? Or like, why are you mixed race, but you don't know what country you're from? That's really unusual. So as I got older, it kind of got more difficult to say, oh, my parents are white and they're definitely my parents. It just didn't really add up the older I got. Yeah. You had an instance when you were in a classroom and a teacher pulled you up in front of the class, which is my fear of everything, because just being embarrassed in front of school and being teased is just like... The worst thing ever, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But how was that for you? What happened? Yeah, so I was quite confident in school. I had lots of friends and I had quite a good relationship with this teacher. She's my politics teacher. And um, for some reason, in the middle of class one day, she was just looking at the school register and she pulled me up in front of everybody and the classroom was silent. And she was like, oh, I'm just looking down the school register and I can see that um, you've been marked down on the the school system. Your ethnicity is white. So my parents, whenever they entered me into the school system, for whatever reasons, they couldn't engage with my difference they had done something really stupid because I I wasn't passing as white I'm not light-skinned I'm not able to to move through the world as a white person and I think for my parents them wanting me to be like them so badly was them you know putting down on the school system that I was white so that was a silly move to make definitely but then my teacher kind of pulled me up 
on this in front of the whole in class. In front of everyone. And then everybody <laughs> in the year above heard about, oh, you're the girl with the white parents, or do you think you're white? What's all this about? And it was just really, really embarrassing. And it was just not not a good situation to be in and just kind of like, yeah, dragged up all these insecurities again. On your hunt for more answers, you did decide to take a DNA test. Mm-hmm. Now, when did you first get that idea? When did that kind of come as a, this is something I need to do because I'm not getting the answers I want for my parents? Mm, so I think just in my late teens, it was easier just to take my parents' word as all that I was going to get from them. And when I was outside of my family, I identify as mixed race or black, but kind of within the family, I was just raceless. We didn't talk about race. We didn't talk about my difference. It was just unspoken about. But then my dad got sick and then all these anxieties that I'd had about me maybe not being related to him or not being related to my mum, they were kind of just like popping up in my mind. So it wasn't until after he passed away that I kind of got these DNA results processed that he'd given me permission to to take. And then I think a year after he, he'd been he'd been passed away, I, I finally processed it and then it kind of revealed that I wasn't related to him. Um, but I was related to my mum and my brother, but I wasn't related to my dad. So then that's just like when my world started to sort of shift and everything sort of felt a lot more difficult. After you took that DNA test, you did another one to essentially find out where in this vast world that you come from. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. So yeah, after the results came out that revealed that me and my dad weren't related, it was really difficult between me and my mum and I couldn't really see myself staying in London for the foreseeable future. So I decided to go and travel and write and sort of do all these things that I hadn't done as a person of colour because I've been too afraid to do that, sort of hanging around with people that look like me, dating people that look like me, just living in spaces where there's other dark-skinned people. That's something I'd never done growing up on the outskirts of London. It was a very white area. And so, um, yeah, I decided to leave and travel. And then I took a DNA test on the road in Mexico with a company that sent me a DNA test. They'd read about my story because I was sort of blogging and writing about it at this point and talking about the link between travel and identity. And then this company sent me a DNA test and were like, oh, you should, you know, find out more about your origins. So then I did the test, I think, in Mexico and they posted it to me in Cuba. So it was all all over the place. And then I got the results when I was in Nicaragua. So that was kind of crazy, just kind of taking the test and being all around these different places when all this stuff was going through my head. I was around different types of people and around people that looked like me for the first time. And I was kind of learning about my own blackness whilst being in countries where blackness was perceived in varying ways. Like in Cuba, I was a mulatta. In Nicaragua, I was just black. And then in New York, I was kind of biracial. So I was having all these different experiences and having this kind of crash course in blackness while still trying to work out where I was from. And then I got the test results back when I was, yeah, in Nicaragua. And it said I was about 50% Nigerian. Okay, yeah. So I was like, okay, cool. Like, this is interesting, but also a bit of a shock. Like, I just had all this stuff going through my mind about where I would be from. And not having an identity was kind of my identity in a way. Like, all my life, people have been like, oh, that's the girl with white parents. And that's the girl who's mixed race, but doesn't know her mix. And then suddenly to have a country, it was satisfying, but it was also kind of anticlimactic in a way. Because I was like, oh, it's not all these different blends. It's just one area of Africa and Nigeria yeah. and I've got a lot of Nigerian friends from London as well and they were all like oh yes we're sisters like we're related welcome literally (laughs) and I was just like oh okay that's it then cool yeah (laughs) well with the knowledge of knowing that you're half Nigerian have you gone to visit Nigeria in hopes of trying to connect with a new part of your identity have you done that yet or is it on the books to try to definitely on the books this year I really would like to go on some sort of heritage tour so that's something I'd love to get involved in in this year um, maybe see if I can go to Nigeria and just kind of get in touch with some part of my heritage but of course it's not really going to be the same as my Nigerian friends who have grown up with that cultural knowledge but it'll be maybe a taster of just what what I've missed out on.
Harnam. So you were diagnosed with a condition when you were 12. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and your story? Okay, first of all, I want to say your story's amazing. Oh, right? She's just sat here listening to you and I can like just listen to you all oh, day. I'm thank so you. interested. That's so kind. <laughs> no, honestly, because I'm like, I'm half Punjabi and half Tanzanian, but I've always gone oh, to wow. Punjab and I've never been to Tanzania. Mm-hmm. So I really want to go. But um, yeah, so I have polycystic ovaries and... Um, it's a condition that affects the way that the ovaries work. So ovulation can be quite hard. It can be quite difficult for me to sort of ovulate, which causes irregular periods. It causes um, infertility. And I literally just have more androgens in my body um, than any other woman would, which causes like facial hair. And PCOS, when I was first diagnosed, I thought it was a very rare condition. And growing up, I realised... One in five people with ovaries actually have. One in five, really? One in five. It used to be one in ten, but so many people have it. Like even trans men too. And yeah, when I first got diagnosed, I thought I was dying of a rare disease. I don't know why I'm giggling about that. But yeah, I thought I was dying of a very rare disease because no one spoke about it. There's celebrities out there that have it. Victoria Beckham has it. No way. Victoria really? Beckham has it, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. She keeps that on the DL. Right? 100%. Now, talk to me about the transition about wanting to remove your beard because of bullying and becoming a spokesperson for the body positivity movement. When a person's been ridiculed and abused all their life and they've gotten to a point where, you know, they're backed up against a wall and they've got their hands up and you know they don't see themselves moving in any which way for me as a person in that situation I could either drown in this deep dark hole of depression suicide and self-harm that I was in or I could say fuck this world I'm going to live it for me you know I'm going to live life how I want to I'm going to adorn myself the way that I want to I have tried living with you know through people's opinions and expectations of me and I still can't please them. So literally middle finger up to society, I'm going to live how I want to live. And at the age of 16, you're trying to, you know, socialise, have a social life, go out with friends, etc. But for me, that's when I started just accepting my beard for what it was because I went through years of trying to remove and change the way that I looked, remove my facial hair in any which way that I could. And... You know, my beard obviously wanted to be there because it came back with a vengeance, you know. Like, <laughs> you all, thought you got rid of me. I know, I know. She was like, bitch, I'm coming back. <laughs> so I, I just got sick and tired of always being put down, always trying to change myself. And I got to a point where I was like, you know what, I'm going to just be me. And at the age of 16, I thought, okay, this is a time where I'm just going to reevaluate myself and the relationship that I have with my body. And, you know, who thinks about that at the age of 16? Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I had like the five o'clock shadow happen. I got a little stubble happen. I was like, oh, okay, this feels good. And then I just thought, you know what? You've gotten this far now. Just carry on growing your hair out. Just see how it goes. See how it looks. Um, Yeah, and then it just grew. And I realized that now that I've actually decided to keep my beard, life's going to be a lot harder. You know, I had obviously pressure from society and these Eurocentric beauty standards. I had... Um, pressure from my family and friends to look a certain way and I mean I don't look like what a regular woman looks like but 
What is normal? <laughs> is you look amazing. I know I do. Thank Rock you. It like it's, it's taken a long time for me to build a relationship with myself and actually realize, you know, that you do look different, you know, but your difference is beautiful. And, you know, it's the difference that's allowed you to be powerful and strong. And, you know, you've made a life for yourself where, you know, body shaming and bullying is universal. And so many people go through it. And you've made a life for yourself where you're actually able to help people through your story. Um, you know, my life now has got nothing to do with my beard. My beard is just a part of me, just like my arm is, you yeah, know. Yeah. But the message that I have, that's what's important. So if tomorrow my beard was to go, naturally, because I won't physically remove her, my message will still say this, stay the same. All right, Annette, moving to you. You're the mastermind behind the brand Fat Girls Traveling. Can you tell me a little bit about where the inspiration to create this brand came from for you? Sure. And I also wanted to first just thank the other ladies for sharing their story and just being vulnerable. Um, it's really great just to hear uh, the similarities, but the differences in our stories. And so I just want to thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's lovely for you to say. Of course. And so I created Fat Girls Traveling basically because I started traveling full time and I would see other plus size women traveling, but I didn't see plus size women represented in travel marketing or travel media. I was trying to launch my travel blogging aspect of my blog and was using all the different hashtags that you're supposed to use, like solo female traveler or black traveler to get refeatured on some of those feature sites. And I noticed yeah. that like I wasn't being featured, but also people that looked like me weren't being featured. Um, the women that were being featured were consistently similar, generally white women with long flowy hair with a floppy hat and like a long flowy dress. And so I thought, hmm, why am I kind of going against the grain and trying to force these platforms to feature me? Why don't I create my own platform that only features women that look like me? And so that's why I created Fat Girls Traveling, just to be representative of the plus size traveler, basically. Um, and from there, it kind of grew into what it is now, which is basically a place where I can showcase like higher end travel images of fat women all over the world. No, that's awesome. I mean, if someone's not going to do it for you, you know, if you want something done, you got to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. But that's amazing that you created this platform for these women. How has the response been because of it? The response has been incredible. I am just going into my second year of launching Fat Girls Traveling. And with that first year, I was featured in like Self Magazine and Shape Magazine and Teen Vogue. And for me, those are important only because they're the air quote like health publications. So I mm -hmm. thought that like infiltrating those spaces and letting people see that health is not just about size um, was really important. And then also as a young woman, I never really saw any positive representation of fat bodies. I only saw it as something to change. So if there was a fat person in marketing or media, it was because this was the before photo and she was working actively to change her body to be more accepted by society. So when I mm -hmm. was featured in Teen Vogue, that was exciting for me just to be 
that person that other plus size girls or fat teenagers can see and see that their bodies are represented and celebrated. Congrats on being featured in all those publications, but especially for Teen Vogue, I think it's really important that young women can see there's these people out there. It's like normalizing it. The the thing that everything people want is things just to be normalized because it's not even a thing it's just exactly and I wanted to add to that as well because you don't exactly see a lot of women with like bodily hair on these big campaigns anyway like even like Venus sort of adverts the women on there that are shaving their leg it's like what are you shaving <laughs> there's, no, there's hair. no hair why do you need to shave you know and um you know talking about Teen Vogue it was great because they also featured me as well and I thought yes like we're actually making like a pathway now for women that are just naturally authentically themselves to be showcase like you have it's funny because this world is so drawn to you know appreciating and accepting what's fake and I don't mean you know in aesthetics or anything like that but just generally we're more drawn to things that have filters on or whatever to now see that there's a movement happening where people in their natural state or whatever they're whatever it is are being appreciated I think that's absolutely amazing you know but I don't want to I, and I and I always say this when it comes to body image that, you know, the images that are portrayed out there, I mean, yes, people do look like that. You know, you do have people that are slim. You do have people that are six packs. And it's not an issue to look like that. But when companies and media and social media and various advertisements are portraying that body as the body to have and the other bodies are made to be shameful or looked over... Um, or downcast or whatever it is, I think that's when the problem comes. No, no, I agree. So, Annette, what is what do you see as your end goal to achieve with your brand, Fat Girls Traveling? Well, I just want to add on to that last statement. Like, specifically, people that live their lives in fat bodies are always told that their bodies are negative and yeah. that we're kind of like the... Like, basically, people tell me that I'm a niche market creating fat girls traveling is like some niche but in actuality in the u.s 70 percent of women are considered plus size and in the u.s plus size is considered a size 14 or above so statistically the women that i'm advocating for are the majority but societally we are told that we're the niche and that we're the outskirts of society because our bodies are not as revered as other body types So it's strange to feel that you're like on the outside of things when you're actually like the majority. What we see with our eyes on a daily basis, that's what we register. And the more we have one type of image portrayed of what is the norm, Mm -hmm. that's what we want to try to attain. Now, Annette, when you went traveling, what challenges did you encounter? Were there any negative stereotyping because of your size? I definitely feel like... I get a lot of stereotypes, not only because of my size, but also because I'm black. So that is something that I deal with specifically in Asia. Um, When it comes to body type as well, they are still very much into the like smaller is better and lighter is is right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if I'm traveling through Asia as a black person and they put whiteness above everything else, that's already an issue. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? But then if I'm traveling as a fat black person, like obviously in certain countries in Asia, the smaller you are, the better. So if being light and super small is like what is socially acceptable, I'm on the opposite spectrum of that. However, 
I haven't had too many like negative experiences. I feel like regardless of if I'm in the States or if I'm in Asia or if I'm, if I'm in Europe, people are sometimes going to stare at my body um, and I'm going to feel othered, you know, but it doesn't necessarily matter where I am because my body type is undesirable everywhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just not what people consider beautiful like i consider that's it beautiful. heartbreaking to hear actually you are beautiful right right of course it's just getting other people to kind of view your beauty the way that you do i think that that can be really difficult but once you kind of uh, align yourself to the fact that those opinions don't matter then it's quite freeing so it's amazing that annette sounds like she's been able to do that totally no, but it's a- also another thing too where for me and my platform like my size and my fat is like the accept acceptable fat like i'm not so big that it's unacceptable so people that mm-hmm. have bodies that are fat like mine are easily going to be able to get more representation are going to be able to say oh i was featured in teen vogue or something but i do want to also mention that there are lots of different types of fat and Mm -hmm. there is still a lot of stigma with people who have bodies bigger than mine and there's still a lack of representation in that um and that is definitely something that i'm actively trying to change by being more diverse even in the images of fat women that i'm showing on my platform no, and I think that's a def- definitely um, something to be applauded for you to have created this platform where you can showcase this. But right now, I kind of want to like open it up to everyone right here, right now. So feel free to chime in. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the first things I want to talk about is self-love. I personally think it's important to practice self-love and to not let other people's opinions bother you. So no matter where you are in the world, um, how do you practice self-love while traveling? I mean, it's very easy to say, oh, just love yourself and you'll be fine. I mean, it's very easy to say that. But how does someone find self-love when they've gone through so much trauma, they've gone through so much abuse and they've got, you know, they're just hit rock bottom and they don't see a way out. It's the hardest thing to do. Mm. And I want to say just by being kind to yourself, it, it, it makes the world of a difference and for me I had to build a relationship with myself actually know who I am you know why am I here what's my purpose what do I want to do with my life how do I make myself happy you know we as people we spend our lives abiding by other people's opinions trying to make them happy but you know we even sure ensure things like our cars and other homely things but when how can we ensure ourselves when we hit rock bottom oh, I like that. or when we break down you know what can we do for ourselves and it's like just be kind to yourself you know speak kindly to yourself because i feel like i speak about a lot of things that are quite triggering and i believe that i need to do so because if i don't i'm afraid that it will become a taboo topic. So things like self-harm, it can be very physical, but it can be very mental as well. You know, talking to yourself in a negative way, it's a, that's self-harm. Yeah. And I think we need to be able to change the narratives of what the norm is and, you know, realise that, you know, we as people, we're very diverse, we're very different, and it's our differences that make this society flourish. And it's the differences that we have within ourselves that we need to celebrate for this society to be what it is. And, you know, the more we realise that and that we actually add value to this world, I think that's when we're able to find that self-value to say, this is who I am, fuck anyone that doesn't understand who I am or what I'm here to do, but... I understand it. I know what I'm here to do and I'm going to live life how I want to. 
That was well said. (laughs) Who's ready to follow that up? (laughs) I think that self-love is a journey. And I think being a part of this body positive community, the misconception is that like, you're you're always going to love yourself. You're always going to love your body. And like mm-hmm. self-love is like a destination that you get there. And once you're there, you're just staying there forever and just always just in love with yourself. But that's not the truth. Like everyone has good days and bad days. And I think the key is just appreciating the small things. Give yourself the grace to know that every day is not going to be a self-love day and every day you're not going to look in the mirror and be obsessed with yourself. But you'll be able to point out one great thing that you love about yourself that day or one thing that you're appreciative about that day. And that will hopefully become like a snowball effect and help you see the positive things. Mm -hmm. I remember one day sitting on my bed just sort of contemplating just self-love and sort of thinking about it like what does it mean to me and I think on my down day one day because your thoughts and your words that you say to yourself are very powerful your thoughts are very powerful and I remember sitting on my bed one day and I thought to myself how dare I not love my body when I'm sleeping like my heart is beating I'm not doing anything Mm -hmm. my body is fighting for me to survive I'm not doing anything and my heart is beating my lungs are inhaling and exhaling like my blood is flowing through my body when I'm cut like my body is healing my cut you know my body is fighting for me to just carry on living this life like how can I not love something that is rooting for me to live that's so true and I think to love yourself these days in an age of sort of Instagram sort of homogenous models and you know society telling us we have to be one way as a woman of colour to love yourself is Mm. definitely a radical act and to love yourself whilst you're traveling it's so freeing and for me learning how to love myself was just kind of listening to what I wanted to do each day and just slowing things right down. And I think travel for me has been this kind of really sort of reflective, meditative process where I could grieve and I could think about the person that I wanted to be and the woman of colour that I wanted to be and the kind of writing that I wanted to produce and the places that I wanted to go and the books I wanted to read. And that has been granted to me because I've really just slowed things down and I know not everybody gets the chance to travel slowly or live in you know different countries for months at a time but for me it was really important to not rush around and country tick and sort of you know sightsee all the time but to kind of have a base and to wake up each morning and just check in with myself and think what do I want to do today do I want to write something do I want to build my brand on Instagram do I want to go and make friends and just constantly listening to myself and also realising that, yeah, as Annette was saying, not every day is going to be a self-love day. Some days are going to be more difficult than others, but it's just that consistent checking in with yourself to find out, you know, how do I feel today? What is it that I want to do? What is it that I want to produce? Where do I want to go in the next few weeks, few months, few years, whatever? So for me, yeah, travel has been really kind of restorative and just, yeah, allowing me to reflect and and think about the kind of person that I am and and who I want to be. In terms of travelling and how it can empower you, how has travelling, because everyone here has done their fair amount of traveling and has also have come to grips of kind of like, you know, self-love or like identity. How has traveling empowered you to be who you are or to be more true to yourself? Or did you find, did you think you found yourself while traveling? (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting when people talk about finding yourself because it's like, is there this destination that you have to reach or is it just kind of like a gradual journey that everybody's on? And I think 
for me, travelling, I just learned a lot more about myself and the kind of work that I want to produce and the kind of person that I want to be. Because also t- it takes you out of your comfort zone because if especially if you exactly. go travelling by yourself, you don't have your family, you don't have your friends, you don't have anything that essentially makes just you, you who you thoughts. are. Yeah. You're you, you, exactly, you yeah. and your thoughts. Um, yeah, definitely. So like, I just took myself to New York because I always wanted to live in New York. So when I kind of got these DNA test results. I was like, right, I'm just going to go and travel. I'm going to start in New York because I always wanted to live this kind of girl style writer's life. But it was really difficult to get a visa. So I was just there for a few months. And then from there, then I kind of went to South America and Costa Rica and Nicaragua and Cuba and all these other places. But it was definitely really, really difficult just taking myself off with no plan and kind of no network in New York. I had like one friend that I'd met in Colombia like a few months before. And I found it really empowering in the way that I knew that I had to rely on myself. I couldn't sort of count on anybody else to help me out when, you know, the rent was due or to help me out when I, you know, missed a flight or help me out when I needed to go out for dinner with somebody and there wasn't anyone around. I just started to do these things myself. And I realised that actually I quite like going for meals out in restaurants by myself on the beach. If there's no one around, I'm fine with that. And I quite like not knowing what I'm going to do each morning. And I quite like waking up and deciding to write something for my blog on a whim and then the next day deciding to move on to another place. So I found out all these things about myself that kind of I'd been burying a little bit more in London because once you're in a situation where everybody's doing the same thing, it becomes really difficult to leave and say, actually, I don't really want to do the nine to five or I don't really want to um, get up and go on the tube every morning. I'd quite like to do something else because all your friends say, oh, no, but this is what everyone does. And, you know, we're going to get a house next year and we're going to get this job next year. And you kind of just become... um, part of, of of the furniture as well you just kind of start doing stuff that everybody else is doing so once I took myself out of that situation for a while I realized that actually I can make maybe a career out of freelancing and writing and I can make sort of a brand out of travel and identity and just being in a different situation and being around other travelers and other people that were maybe doing other things that were similar I met lots of people that also were making money from Instagram or from blogging or from writing or designers that were working on the go and it just showed me that that is a you know a viable career route as well. And if you want to live like that, that's totally fine. It doesn't make you any better or any worse than all of your friends back home doing you know a nine to five job. It's just people have different paths. And once you take yourself out of kind of the situation where everyone's doing one thing, you can see that perhaps you know there's another route for you, and that's totally okay. Yeah. So I found that really liberating and really um, empowering. And even though now I'm back in London, it's something that I know that I can go back to. I can go back to sort of living on the road and I can go back to freelancing as I go. And it's fine to have those options. So just travelling kind of widened that perspective for me and made me see that there are other routes other than being stationary and just working in a city for you know years at a time. You can you can mix it up. You can leave for a bit. You can come back. It's not the end of the world. And people will kind of try and persuade you that perhaps it's not the best route for you, but it's totally fine. You don't need to stress about it because there, there's so many routes for so many people. And it's, we don't all have to do the same thing. Exactly. And I think for me, like, I mean, I know my mum and dad would love me to get into business and mm-hmm. doctor <laughs> and lawyer. And I'm just like, I'm no, <laughs> you know, I'm more of a doer and go-getter. Like, I'm quite feisty with it because, like, I know that my image is needed and I know that someone that looks very different and that's confident with it and feels self-empowered with it is needed. So me travelling, I'm like, well, I'm here, bitches, you know, <laughs> sort of thing. That's the stance that I take on it. Like even being present as someone that looks so different, I think that's a revolutionary move in itself. And being able to travel, like I love meeting new people, you know, and I love hearing about people's lives and, you know, experiencing other people's cultures and ethnicities and sort of different food etc and 
like just being able to travel it sort of freed my mind and it made me realize even more that this world is actually a lot more diverse than I knew that it would be um and also to realize that everyone is sort of on that everyone just wants to be happy regardless of where they are in their lives and I think traveling has allowed me to you know connect to all these amazing people in the most wondrous way and also realize that we're not all that different like we look different but in essence like we just want to be happy and find love and be loved that's so true I think that a lot of people say that you find yourself when you travel I personally have felt that I've learned more about myself while traveling I haven't really found myself like Georgina said I don't think that like my identity is some destination that I'm still searching for or anything like that. But I think that every day while I'm on the road right now, I'm a digital nomad. So I'm traveling full time. It's definitely a journey, <laughs> pun intended. But <laughs> <laughs> Well said. <laughs> I definitely feel like each day I'm learning something about whatever city or country that I'm in. And in that, I'm learning more about myself. I'm also confronting different like preconceived notions that I had or biases that I had uh, for certain countries or for certain people. So not only am I learning more about different cultures and different food and different countries, but I'm also learning more about myself. Travel for me is just me learning more about myself while I'm learning more about other people and other cultures. And that kind of gives me the freedom to grow and to change because I feel like as long as we're living, we're going to be constantly changing and growing. Um, and I feel like that's something that we should be striving to do because when we change and we grow, that is when we're really living life and, you know, confronting what's in front of us and really being present. Well said, well said. Well, thank you very much, ladies. Thank you for taking part in today's episode of Real Talk. Thank you. For Thanks having for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much to my guests, Annette Richman, Harnam Kaur, and Georgina Lawton for sharing their stories on traveling without labels. That's it from Out of Office, powered by Contiki. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. I'll see you then. 